Psalm 27. In the Old Testament, Psalm 27. For a few moments, I'd like to teach about antidotes to fear. To fear. Antidotes to fear. And I'll read the first four verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies, my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Antidotes to fear. If you've ever taken the time to read the Psalms, you know that David is the author of many of them. What is impressive about the Psalms Some of them have a superscription that gives you a little insight to the background regarding why and where they were written. Sometimes that information is important, helps you appreciate the wording. When you look at the life of David, of course, in many ways it is a type of Christ, but I've wondered how it is that a man who was such a warrior would have time in the evening or in the morning to write such lovely songs. And these were all written not to be poems, but to be songs used in worship. And you have to imagine that Psalm 27 is a worship text, and for your own purposes, in your own private worship with God, you could put the words to your own music. But the man of God says, The Lord is my light. Here's the emphasis. He is talking about God because he knows that God is the answer to every problem that he has. And you can see it in previous Psalms, and then you can see it in Psalms afterwards. Here is a man that's not afraid of the darkness, or afraid of the dark. You ever notice how young people are when they're little? Sometimes kids want a nightlight. They are fearful of extreme darkness, the pitch blackness, we'll call it. And young people, when they're in the the bed, of course, there's something in the darkness that frightens them because sometimes the images, the shadows that they see, maybe the moonlight or the, the, the illumination from the stars are coming through the window and it's making all kinds of strange configurations and shapes and, and they're kind of nervous. Sometimes they hear noises. Maybe the house is settling. But the one thing I am certain of, the number one reason that they are so fearful is because of the sense of loneliness. All by themselves, possibly unable to protect themselves. That's why maybe you and others, when you had a bad dream or your kids had a bad dream, sometimes you'd hear a scream and suddenly the, you'd hear a door pop open 
And then you'd hear little feet scampering along the floor, making their way to your room. And then your door would throw open. Then suddenly there'd be that brief period of silence as the kids go airborne diving into your bed. Or maybe you did that as a kid. They were afraid of the dark and there was a sense of fear in that darkness that is not experienced in the light. David was a man that had many dark times in his life. He ran from Saul. He hid from Saul. Saul was out to kill him. Nevertheless, David is able to to give a song of confidence and he says, the Lord is my light. Think of that word. Light gives you confidence, balance, better equilibrium. You turn the lights out in a dark room, and if you're unable to see your hand passing in front of your face, try to run from one side of the room to the other and watch and see what all you trip over. A light gives you confidence because you can see. And the scripture says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. So as we make our way from here to heaven... We're passing through many trials and difficulties in our own lives, and God wants his word to be a lamp at our feet to give us us a sure step. That on your pathway, you don't have to be fearful about where you're going, how you're going to get there. God is going to make sure that if the adversary has placed obstacles in your path, the light is going to manifest the obstacles so that you can either step over the obstacle or go around it. But David doesn't conclude there. He also says God is his salvation. That is to say there are times where you may need rescue, deliverance. You fall into a pit. You can't get out on your own. You need somebody to throw a rope down to you. God's able to do that. You find yourself surrounded by adversaries. God is able to deliver you. He puts a table out there in, in, in the presence of all of your adversaries and your enemies. The adversary is attacking you physically. He brings sickness into your body and he's working to try to bring nothing but discomfort and dis-ease into your life. And you in and of yourself don't have the ability to cure yourself. But yet the scripture makes it very plain that when troubles enlarge themselves about me, I can call to God and he saves me out of my distresses. So that means God is your salvation. Not a man, not a woman, but God becomes your salvation. Knowing that, David asked the question, whom shall I fear? Well, think of it. If you've got God on your side, who should you fear? Nobody. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. If God is for you, who can be against you? But Paul doesn't end there. He goes on. He says, God is the strength of my life, which tells me in order to live this life in this world, if the breath of life is going to be in my body, I need strength to make it through. You can draw strength from a lot of different, a lot of different uh, places and people. But I'll give you an illustration. Growing up as I did on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio, I had two older brothers. And my two older brothers, they stayed in trouble. And they were older than me by eight and ten years. And they were well known in the community and quite popular. My oldest brother seemed like he was always in some kind of a fight. So there were a lot of people who just really didn't bother little Daryl. It's wonderful. 
But you probably won't believe it, but little Daryl was quite mouthy. He is a tiny guy. I was always into mischief and doing things. And I didn't mind talking back to those older guys who were teenagers when I was five and six and seven. And, and I mean, I'd be telling them, I'd give you one of these here. That'd be the end of that. Well, there was one guy in our neighborhood who always harassed me, I think, just because he knew who my brothers was. And he was always trying to bully on me. He was older than me. And and there wasn't much I could do with him. I mean, I, I try to do things, but it could, couldn't do anything with, with him. And so one day I was going to the store and he was harassing me as I was going. But then when I was on my way back, he was still on the sidewalk with some other guys. And I could see, you know, as you're coming up the sidewalk, you see the, the, the group of guys and you just kind of want to be anywhere other than where they are. But you know you've got to go past them. And, and sure enough, they were ready to start in and start harassing me. But I looked further down the sidewalk and saw my big brother, Anthony. Oh, my. Well, once I saw him. Then I just walked confidently right on up there. I said, anybody got anything they want to say to me now? I said, Anthony's right up there on the sidewalk. Well, no, they didn't bother me, and I went home. But notice where I drew my strength from. I didn't draw it from myself. I drew it from the presence of my brother. What does David say? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You have to find your strength not in some human person, but in God. So Paul says it this way in the letter to the Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. There there are some things you can do. There's some things we cannot do, but he can do all things and we can do all things with him through Christ Jesus, the Bible says. So there is a strength that is available to you and to me if we'll avail ourselves of it. Verses two and three make it apparent that there are times when your enemies have an ill motive toward you. They'd rather see you dead. They'd rather undermine your authority. They'd rather see you lose your position, your job, your place of blessing. And the scripture says here in verse 3 that even if an army were to surround you, David said, my heart will not fear. Now that is quite a statement. Most of us, We can be easily intimidated by just getting off at the wrong off-ramp in the wrong neighborhood. But imagine if an entire army came and besieged our little town right here. They were anger. Anger there. They were hostile towards us. This man David has experienced that. He's gone through it. He, He fought Goliath and defeated him just like that. But he was on the run from Saul for years. But the man of God said, my heart shall not fear. He says, in this, I will be confident in this, in what? In this situation, in this scenario. Now, we can connect the word this to verse four if we like, but we hadn't got to verse four yet. But but as far as his his statement so far, in this trial, in this situation, I can still exhibit confidence. I do not have to be afraid. Just because you get bad news, you do not have to become terrified. I know what it is to become fearful. 
when I had that massive blood clot and I was in the emergency room in the hospital, that man had my leg up there and he had whatever kind of device up there looking at my legs and veins and arteries and all that, trying to look at the blood flow. He happened to make a, a, a general statement. He said, now with blood clots, you don't want to move. And then he looked at mine and he almost had like a source of horror on his face because he'd never seen a blood clot that big. Mine went from a vena cava here all the way down to my into my left ankle. And so he looked at that and I'll never forget what he said. He said, don't you move your leg because if one of those little pieces break off and go up into your lungs or into your head or something, you'll be dead. And immediately terror came to me. Oh, my goodness. I didn't even want to twist or turn. But finally, I calmed down and I realized I've made it all the way from home 40 miles to here. I'm not going to die in the next 30 seconds. See, not going to die in the next 30 seconds. Once I began to calm down, then my heart and everything could be able to, to meditate on the word of God and I could fill my mind with the word of God. Think on things that are pure. But here's what David says in verse 4. He says, there's one thing I've desired. I want to dwell in the house of God. One thing. There are a number of things in your life that are of importance to you, but the one thing that should be most important to you is God and his house. We know corporately we're the house of God. Individually, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we cannot overemphasize the importance of fellowship, sitting under the word of God, fellowshipping with believers that love Jesus passionately, and fervently. This man said one thing I desire and he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord. He would never have wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord if he didn't find enjoyment in the house of God. Now there's a scripture that says in the presence of the Lord there's fullness of joy. You know for some people going to church is like pulling teeth. They don't want to be there. They'd rather take a beating than have to go and sing or worship or listen to someone preach to them. Not so with me. I can't wait to get to the house of God. I can't wait to fellowship with you, to see you, to hug your neck and to smile with you and to see how things have been going in your life. Because I know that when I'm looking into your face, I'm beholding the beauty of the Lord in you. And this is what David says, one thing I desire, that will I seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. If I have a question, if there's something that I don't understand, I want to be in the presence of God where the solutions can be found. See, just one word from God can change your life forever. Just one. One message can put your life on an entirely different path. One prophecy changed the lives of people in Scripture. Just one word from God. David goes so far as to say that in the time of trouble, which is to say trouble will be permitted into your life sometimes, but in the time of trouble he shall hide me. Trouble has a time frame. Trouble is not eternal. And this is why we run into the phrase in the Old Testament, and it came to pass. Because that's what trouble does. It comes to pass. It doesn't come to stay. 
It comes to pass. And as long as you know that, you can worship God with the understanding that I'm passing through this valley right now, but that is exactly what I'm doing. I'm passing through this valley right now. As God's taking you to the exit sign. Don't build a tent or build a house in the valley. Don't stay there. Don't make plans to be there forever. Some things are temporary. But in the time of trouble, God will hide you in his pavilion. And as it says here in the secret of his tabernacle, he shall hide you and set you upon a rock. Now, the only way you get established upon a rock is if you pass through the period of trouble. Now, think of that. If God has to reach down and rescue, when he rescues you, he's pulling you out of the trouble. He's not taking you from one trial and just placing you in another trial. He puts you on a place that is high enough to where your head is above your enemies. And now you can laugh at the devil. <laughs> Say, oh, you thought you, you thought you were going to kill me with that blood clot. Are you crazy? Do you know who I serve? I serve the great and mighty God. And you have to be like that. When the king puts you on the rock, you have a perspective that is different from other people's perspective. So verse six, your head is lifted up above your enemies. He says it is in the tabernacle that you offer to God sacrifices of joy and you sing praises unto the Lord. David is saying, with everything that I've passed through in my life, every difficulty I've faced, every challenge that I've had to deal with, I have overcome them by the help of God. So now I'm ready to praise God. That's why when we come out here on the Lord's Day, this is not the time to murmur and complain about having to be in church. This is the time to thank God that I have another day's journey that I've completed. This is the time to come into the presence of the Lord and say, Father, thank you. Now, all of us like gratitude and we love for people to say to us, thank you. How often do you say to God, thank you in your prayers and your praises? The songs that we very often choose to sing and prepare for praise and worship when we come out here are designed to lead us into thanking the Lord and worshiping him. We're not here to testify about ourselves. We're not here to talk about how wonderful we are. I haven't died for anybody, nor have you. But he died. And because he died on the cross for us, we can offer the sacrifice of joy. And what is the sacrifice? Usually it's something that has had to give up its life. You have to do that. Die to self. Crucify your own will. In order to be able to give God that exuberant praise that he desires to have. Well, notice verse seven. He says, hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy upon me and answer me. Here's a man that wants to hear from God. He wants the Lord to respond to him when he prays. I've never met a Christian that when he prays, he didn't want God to answer. Now, I, I am a, a, a person who believes that as long as we are required to pray and ask God to get involved, then we can expect supernatural aid. I've never in my life been one of these people that just believes we're going from generation to generation and God doesn't help 
anybody. God doesn't talk to anybody. God doesn't encourage anybody. And, and I don't think for one second that, that, that God is just in black letters on white pages. I have more than a book. I have a person that lives inside of me. This is an individual relationship with God. So when I pray, I expect God to hear me, to answer me, because this is what he says that we should do to pray in faith. Well, having said that, there are numerous people in this world that when they pray, they have no they have no conception at all that God's going to answer. And for them, a prayer is something that's on a card or a piece of paper. And when they're in trouble, they just pull out a piece of paper. They've got different prayers for different situations. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you having a prayer, a petition, a request that comes out of your lips for God. Now imagine this. Imagine if when you were a kid, if you wanted your mother and father to do something for you, like take you to get some ice cream or buy you a bicycle or give you a few extra dollars so that you could buy something. Imagine if every time you did that, you went to a friend and asked the friend, could you write down my request? And then I want to take this to my dad and I want to read this to him because it'll probably be more important to him if I'm reading your words. And so they they write down They say, well, dad, could you please take me to the park because it's been two weeks. Now, that's the request. So you take the card and you go to your dad and your dad's looking at you. And the whole time you're looking at the card and you're because you can't remember what the card says. See, So you say, well, dad, could you please take me to the park because it's been a long time since we've gone. And your father is going to be looking at you like, what is wrong with you? You're my child. I have a relationship with you, with you. Why don't you talk to me just like we know one another? And that is exactly how it should be in prayer. Your life should not be bound to 17th century prayers. You should know how to talk to God. And sometimes the most anointed word in the English language is a one syllable word. Help. If you need help. Cry out for help. Well, verse 8, he says, When you said to me, Lord, seek your face or seek my face, my heart said, Thy face, O Lord, will I seek. The man of God is saying, I'm seeking the face of God and not his hands. Don't seek the promises of God. Seek the promiser. Look to the face of God, the countenance of God that radiates with the favor of the Lord. You don't have to look to the hands of God. He will bless you and look after you because you belong to him. So the scripture says, don't hide your face far from me, Lord. Don't put your servant away in anger. You have been my help. That's past tense. Don't leave me. That's present tense. Neither forsake me, present tense, O God of my salvation. He said it in verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He cannot get away from that idea that God is my rescuer. What is he to you? Has he done it for you in the past? He'll do it for you today. He'll do it for you in the future. That's amazing to me, you know. Some years ago down in... Oklahoma, a young man received a scholarship to go to the University of Kansas to play some basketball. He got there and began to run with the wrong crowd. 
some of these athletes on scholarships, they are exposed to drugs and other things. This young man was the son of a full gospel deacon in a church. He gets to Kansas, gets involved with the wrong crowd, and gets kicked off the team. Eventually, he is thrown out of the school and loses his scholarship, starts selling drugs, and ends up in prison. This young man's name was Gail. He gets out of jail, hooks up with a girl in the Kansas area that he really loved, a girl named Carolyn. She was absolutely beautiful. But she was involved with the drug scene also, so they decided to leave Kansas and head to Colorado, and that's what they did. Went to Colorado, and, and there, they got involved with the drug scene there. Was involved with acid and all kinds of other things that are not good for the, for the physical body. Were destroying themselves, running with the wrong crowd. Got so bad that Gail, in debt to a lot of drug dealers, in a bad situation, He's giving his girlfriend away to different people, different men at these parties, and she's just going from one man to the other, sleeping with them at these drug parties. And um, this went on for some time. Well, one day they were driving to a party to do more drugs, and Carolyn says to Gail, I want you to take me to church. He laughed and snickered and said, church, what do people like us do in church? Why would we go to church? Well, remember, he's a deacon of a full gospel. He's a full gospel deacon. He's the son of a full gospel deacon. He said, what, what do people like us need to go, go to church for? And so she, she said, look, I'm not doing any more drugs until you take me to church. Well, they went to the party. He, he tried to get her to sleep with all of these different guys so he could get some free drugs and she, she wasn't having any of it, wouldn't do any drugs at all. Finally, he got to thinking about it and she said she wanted to go to church. There was one church called Christ Church that he always passed by when he was driving. And for some reason, he said he knew that that church was probably a Pentecostal church. Now, I don't know if it was because of the way people were acting in the parking lot or in and out or whatever it was. But he just said down in here, he knew it was one of them full gospel churches. And he just kept thinking to himself, well, I hope when when she says she wants to go to church that that won't be the one. Well, he asked her, said, where do you want to go to church? She said, well, I want to go to that one that we pass by all the time when we're driving, the one called Christ Church, and his heart sank. Oh, my goodness. So they waited one Sunday morning. They knew the service times and everything, came to the church, got in there late, left early before anybody could get hold to them and talk to them. Two or three weeks went by, they, they hadn't been seen again, and the pastor was just kind of wondering about them. So they showed up again. This time they came a little bit earlier and stayed a little bit later, shook a few hands, hugged a few necks, told some people who they were, and so on and so forth. Well, God's doing something. Fish are on the line, and, and, and the word of God has become the bait and is dealing with them. So about eight or nine weeks later, pastor gets up to preach. I know the story because it's a good friend of mine. Pastor gets up to preach and he gives the altar call and both of them 
responded to the altar call, got up out of their pews, came down, one knelt on one side of the altar, the other was on the other side of the altar, both had their hands on the rails with their heads down there and began to pray. Well, you know, in, in that church, I mean, those, those men and those ladies descended on them like a pack of piranhas. You hear me? I'm telling you, the men got over there around the guy and the ladies got over there around the, the uh, lady and they, they got leverage on it because they had them down on their knees to make sure that when they tried to get up, they push them right back down. I mean, they just kept praying and just, oh, God, touch them, minister to them, Lord. Well, it was wonderful because... In that service, they both were gloriously saved by the blood of Jesus. Three weeks later, both of them filled with the Holy Spirit. About six months later, having been faithful in the church, the pastor said to the to Carolyn, said, would you like to teach Sunday school and work with the kids? Well, meanwhile, they both had gotten married they were living out of wedlock, pastor had married them. She, she said, well, pastor, I, I'm unable to teach because I'm no longer able to read. She said, I've done so many drugs. It's messed up my brain. I have no concentration at all to try to read the scriptures. It's impossible. I've tried for years. I lost that ability years ago just to be able to read a simple paragraph. He said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, you come down after one of the messages, we'll anoint you with oil and we'll pray for you. He said, we're not going to tell anybody about what's going on in your life, but I'm going to anoint you with oil and we're going to pray and ask God to restore your mind so that you can teach Sunday school and work with these kids. So that's exactly what happened. After one of the services, she came down, man of God anointed her with oil in accordance with James chapter five, laid hands on her and prayed for her. And they came back and told him later on in the week, she went home and for the first time, all the years they'd been together, she sat down with the Bible and read through several chapters and never had a problem. And went on and became a great teacher with the kids. Well, after they had been married, they had they they had wanted to have a child, but were afraid to try. I don't know the correct pronunciation for those doctors that ladies have to go see. I want to say obstetrician or something. I have no idea what it is. But but went to one of those doctors and the doctor said, there's no way you should have a child. You've done so many drugs abused your body so bad, you're liable to have a child that's deformed. I've looked at your chart through the examinations. I've talked to and I've examined your uh, boyfriend or your husband there. You should not do this. Well, they went to the pastor and they were in tears. They were brokenhearted. And they said, Pastor, I mean, we badly would like to have a kid. We finally gotten our life on track. And so the pastor said, well... I tell you what, so you come down after one of the messages, we'll anoint you with oil and we'll pray to God to give you a healthy baby without any defects or deformities, regardless of what the doctor has told you. He said, I'm not going to mention it to anybody. Don't you mention it to anybody. This will just be between us. We'll just pray a general prayer down here, but you will know what we're praying for specifically. So sure enough, 
They came down, they anointed him with oil, prayed for them, and nine and a half months later, he dedicated that baby standing up there at that altar. And there wasn't a problem with that kid. Here was a husband and wife that were bound by fear, but they learned through the word of God that there are antidotes to fear. That you don't have to be afraid, you can trust God. And even when the adversary is constantly reminding you of your past, however wicked, however bad it might have been, you can still hold on to the truthfulness of God's word because God is faithful. He'll protect you. He'll preserve you. He'll rescue you. Let's finish what David said. When my mother and father forsake me, then the Lord takes me up. God has only children. God has never made an orphan in his life. There are a lot of orphans, orphanages. We don't have them as accessible today as we did a century ago, but the equivalent today would be something like the boys' town foster care. I pastored people who were raised in foster care. Their parents didn't want them. I pastored people who their parents took them to a babysitter and said, I'll be back to get them in such and such time and never came back. But when they see a verse like this, it changes their life. It gives them dignity because they realize that even though I don't have a parent anymore, I still have God as the replacement and God can help you and bless you and care for you. Some of you in here right now may know of some older people or may have known of older people that years ago passed through Nebraska on the orphan train. You remember they'd come to certain stops in these little towns and then the families would go to these little railway stops and then they'd select the children that they wanted off of the different cars. Yeah. And I'm sure there were a whole lot of husbands and wives that were glad to take those little kids in their arms. And I'm sure there were some other people that had different attitudes and they were just looking for workers for their business on the farm. Select this person, that person. But David says, I've got a relationship with the Lord and God is the one that comes and cares for me and nourishes me and provides for me. So teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of my enemies. Notice his focus, despite his enemies, his knowledge and his acquaintance with his enemies, he's still focused on God. Don't deliver me over to the will of my enemies, God. False witnesses are risen up against me, such as breathe out cruelty. Here's a man that knows what it is to have hostility in his life. Have people angry at him. But over and over, he says, God, you're bigger, you're stronger. And he goes on to say, I would have fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He said to each one of you that are in here this evening, I have been right there where you are. I have been tired. I have been weary. I have had sleepless nights. I have gone hungry. I have had to deal with affliction in my body and I was ready to wave the white towel or white flag of surrender. He said, except I believe to see God's goodness in my life. He knew that all the other stuff wasn't the goodness of God. So the man had faith 
to expect something better. How is your expectation level this evening? What do you expect out of each day, out of each week? Do you expect bad things or do you expect a miracle? Do you expect good things or are you expecting the roof to collapse and the walls to cave in and the floor to fall out? Or are you expecting God to actually show up and show out and bear his mighty arm for you? That's what you should expect. Expect God to be a warrior on your behalf. Unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. There are a lot of people walking around on two feet, but they're not living. They're alive. They're breathing. But they don't have much of a life. And then finally, David can say, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He'll strengthen your heart. That's where we began. The Lord is the strength of my life. He'll strengthen your heart. But he's saying, I'm telling you, wait. Don't give up. Don't be so tired that you just say, I can't take another step. I don't want to go forward. I'm just, oh, I'm just exacerbated by all of this. And everything is a mess. I'm tired, Lord. God, do you even understand? David says, wait. He says, God will strengthen your heart. It'll be like the renewing of the strength of an eagle. All of us pass through those periods where we're tired, but it's like on a, on a very, very hot day and somebody comes along with some beautiful, fresh and cold water from the well. And then you stand there and you drink that. And as it goes down inside of you, it just invigorates you and you can feel the coldness just, just meshing with everything on the inside. And you're like, Oh my goodness, this feels good. That's what God will do. He'll strengthen your heart. And in the midst of your trial, you'll realize that the strength of God that's in your heart is now bigger than the troubles that's in your trial. And so you'll flex your muscles at the devil and then you'll walk around in that valley with that big S on your chest that says super sudden. Praise the Lord. You won't be intimidated by the devil at all. But walk with God. You don't have to be afraid. Psalm 27, just a few antidotes to fear. Now, Miss Tina, we want to anoint you with oil and pray for you and ask the king to bless you and touch you. Are you able to stand? Can you make your way down there? Praise the Lord. Come on, everybody. Let's stand on our feet. Praise the Lord.